Pray with me. Um, Jesus, just ask that um, as we take a look at this, this book, these, these chapters, these sections of passage, that um, just as you do in this book, that, that you would be revealed and that you yourself would do the revealing. And so um, I'm going to do very little but point us to what you have already said about yourself and what you have already said about the truths that will or are currently taking place. And so um, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we're relying on you to do all the teaching tonight. Um, we're relying on you to to score the hearts of your people and to open our eyes, to peel back the scales from our eyes. And I pray that many of us who may know about you would come to know you tonight. And those of us that do know you, that we would come to, to see you um, in a more radical perspective as, as you present yourself to us in this text. And so, Jesus, we give tonight to you, ask um, for the ability to teach. I ask for the ability to teach. I ask for the ability to learn as well for all of us, Jesus, that, um, that you would be glorified, that you would be most high, that you would be preeminent for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't been coming, we've been in a series called, as you can see, Schemes. And we've been taking a look at the major tactics deployed by Satan and his demons against Christians. See, the the purpose of the Bible is not only, though it's preeminently first and foremost about Jesus, it is also a playbook for how we are to understand and interact and combat the enemy, because the Bible says that we do have an enemy. We don't just have a savior. We also have an enemy. And through this series, I've been praying that we don't focus on the enemy, that we convert that attention over to our savior. But at the same time, the Bible spends a lot of time showing us the tactics of the devil so that we wouldn't be surprised when they're deployed against us. And so the series came out of second Corinthians two eleven, which says that in order that Satan might not not outwit us, we are not to be unaware of his schemes. And so it is a call on the Christian life, not to just know that there is an enemy. It's to know that he is scheming and he is not a domesticated house cat seeking to annoy you. He is a roaring lion seeking to destroy you. And so Satan is not a tamed house cat. He is a roaring lion seeking about those whom he may devour. And we've also taken a look at the series and the fact that Satan cannot take your faith from you. He cannot take your salvation from you. Please, I believe I've repeated it every week. Do not fear that he can rip salvation from you. The Bible says he who's been placed in the father's hand, no man can remove. So Satan can't steal your salvation, but he can steal the joy of your salvation. And so he attacks that which brings us joy in our salvation, knowing that he can't rip our salvation from us. And by the way, Satan and his demons, as we're going to see, cannot receive salvation either. The Bible tells us that they are condemned. Their eternity is solidified. It is over for them. They had their choice and they are signed, sealed, eternally damned. The same is not true of us. And so for many of us, we knew a point where we didn't know Jesus. When we came to Jesus, the demons are wounded animals that are backed into a corner with no way out. And so they lash out. 
and the schemes of Satan are deployed. And first Peter five, eight says, be sober. It's a militant term. Be vigilant. It's a stand guard. Your passage may say be on watch. It may say it's militant language. Why? Cause it's a battlefield. Christianity is not a playground. It's a battlefield. It says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We've spent five weeks and initially it was going to be a five week series. And then Rob wanted to do one more week, which I love. I didn't know what I was going to do until right after he said, could you push it out one more week? And it came to me like minutes later that I get to teach through revelation because for a long time, I was known as the guy that always referenced Revelation 19. Some of you, some of you maybe haven't studied the book of Revelation. You've never sat under teaching of Revelation. You've never gone through a commentary of Revelation. You're a little freaked out about Revelation. You're a little confused about Revelation. You're a little concerned about the weirdos that are always debating about Revelation and fighting about what means what. And is it really the woman and the dragon? Is it really a woman and a dragon and a child? Or is it a metaphor? Or is it imagery? Or, and we just tend to, and you know, there's a lot of churches that actually don't touch this book because it divides. They just don't touch it. And so we'll get to it here in a second, but we've spent five weeks going through the schemes of Satan. And tonight we're going to see the very last time that he's allowed to scheme. And in week one, we learn that all of Satan's tactics are predicated on a lie. It's the same lie that he believed that got him kicked out of heaven. He said, I will be like the most high. I will ascend above the clouds of heaven and I will be the most high. He was an angel at first. And then when he committed cosmic treason and said, I will be like God, he grabbed a third of the angels, which are an innumerable force. And they're an amazing force and powerful creatures. He got a third of them to commit cosmic treason. You pick a fight with God, you lose a fight with God. He got kicked out of heaven and stricken down to earth where his, he and his demons are scattered and they run around waging war. And so we learn that that lie is the first lie that he slithered into the garden and fed to our first parents that they could be like the most high. You can be like God. God gave you all this, but he said, not that fruit, not that fruit. Come on. Did he really say that? And he sneered in the original language. He sneered like, oh, seriously, what kind of petty God would keep you from the good fruit? And Adam and Eve believed the lie that they could be like God. And so we see that all of sin is the trading of paradise for a piece of fruit. And so this lie that we can be God is the lie that we deal with every single morning. Whether you know it or not, you dealt with it this morning, the same as I did. You dealt with it this afternoon, the same as I did. You're dealing with it tonight, the same as I did. You're going to deal with it tomorrow, the same as I will. Is that we get to be God, that we get to be the center of truth. We get to be the abdicators of, of right and wrong. We get to be the arbiters of who God is, who he says he is and who we are and who we say we get to be. So the first week we took a look at the lie. All these sermons are online. If you want to go back second week, we took a look at temptation. We know that Satan loves to draw us in. He loves to lure us in with temptation. He likes to bring us to that line and say, it's not going to be that bad. Don't worry about it. It's just, look, you're already saved by grace. Come on, you know that. I know that. He knows the Bible, by the way. He'll quote the Bible often. He tried it with Jesus. And he'll tempt you. He'll bring you in. He'll lure you into that line. Say, come on, come on, come on. It's not going to be that bad. Step over that line. We learn that Jesus has stood on that line with you. It says, tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus is the only God of all the false gods the world has come up with. They've never written that script that the God of the universe stood on the line of temptation. He never crossed it. He never sinned, but he was tempted in every way 
That's why he can be our great high priest. Every single way you've ever been tempted, Jesus understands and knows. It doesn't get you off the hook when you cross over. But it says that he's a great high priest that on that line, he stands next to you and says, I know what this feels like. I've been here tempted in every way yet without sin. And so Satan loves to lure you and it's not gonna be that bad. And when you cross the line, his third tactic is accusation. And that's when it goes from a boxing match to a ground war. And he jumps on top of you and he says, see what you've done. And he starts to rain down fists of accusation on you. And everyone that's ever been in a fight knows it's deadly when it's on the ground. It's dangerous when you're afoot and it's, da- it's deadly when you're on the ground. And he wages war and accuses and says, look what you've done. There's no way God could love you. You're exactly who I thought you were. You're exactly who I said you were. You're terrible. How could Jesus love you now? And it's this ground and pound of accusation. And we see that amid that accusation, Jesus stands as our advocate. And to be honest, Jesus says, everything that Satan's saying about you is true. Is it not? You've done this. You said that. You thought this. You felt that. It's true. Jesus doesn't say, no, it's not true. He says, it is true. He says, but you missed something. It's not about them. It's about me. And if they're clothed in my righteousness, they're free. They're pure. They're as white as snow. And so Satan wages accusation and Jesus stands and says, try it on me. That person is in me, the Bible says. And in me, they're right before God. The fourth week, we took a look at counterfeit faith. We took a look at the fact that Satan isn't just content creating atheism. He's content creating fake faith or counterfeit faith that mirrors real faith, but is a cheap knockoff of the real thing. And he's, he's not simply out there to cause unbelief. He's out there to cause counterfeit belief. And we see that that faith being a gift from God, being a a gift from Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith in him were secured. Last week, we took a look at divide and devour. The fact that all the other tactics, if he can just get you isolated, if he can just get you to say, you know what? The church hurt me. I don't need the church right now in my life. If he can just get you into a room by yourself, he can go absolutely hog wild with all the other tactics. And we see that, and we took a look at a video even of, of some, some water buffalo that are able to, we didn't take a look at, we took a look at one video, which is kind of funny, of a, a buffalo flinging a lion about 10 feet in the air uh, when that community came in to, to save one of the water buffalo. It's amazing what just three water buffalo can do amid a roaring lion. But you see that this herd mentality, that when herds stick together, there's power in that number I am a pastor. I'm called to, to shepherd as Jesus shepherds us all. And we see that, that one of his favorite things to do is to get us set away from community and outside of biblical community and outside of pastoral authority and to isolate us, to divide us so that he can then devour us. But I wrote down this as a lead in. I need us to remember that the battle is not defined by the enemy who circles us but by the God who stands within and beside us. And so as Satan and his demons wage war, as we're in biblical community and we've understood the lens through which we're supposed to see these tactics, know that we are not defined. We do not live in fear about a roaming lion. 
Why? Because we stand with our advocate by our side. We stand in the person and the work of Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and the Holy Spirit that indwells with us. The enemy does not define the script. God who authored it defines us. And so this week, we're going to take a look at Jesus' victory over all said schemes. This week, we declare Jesus' victory against all schemes. The ones we've studied, the ones we haven't. The ones you're dealing with, the ones that you will or you have. If I can convert that attention from the schemes to a savior, you'll be in a winning position to overcome on this earth until he overcomes with the new earth. And some of us here tonight, as I said, might not know how it ends. Some, some of you don't know that, that in the full revelation of God's word, Christians actually know the future. Not everything, I wish. I'd know who's going to win tomorrow's game. I'd put some money on it, right? There's entire industries predicated on guessing who's going to be successful. The, the stock market, betting, gambling, guessing, predicting the future. Do I hedge my bets? Do I invest in stock? Do I go Snapchat now at IPO at 22 bucks? Will they be 140? Something? If only I could predict the future. And in one sense, Christians don't predict. It's been revealed. The absolute truth of the future. And so, Revelation. I had you open to chapter 19, which is pretty crazy. Some of you are looking at it, scanning on it, being like, what's about to go happen? Uh, I need to tell you this. It's, it's quite possibly even crazier before you get to 19. What I want to do tonight is I, I, have to, I have to build the whole book because 19, if you just swoop in at 19, we could do that. But I want the context of what happens. I want to see how much people go through before Jesus shows up and finally says enough is enough. How many times, though it seems chaotic and full of wrath and fury, God was extending ultimate judgment. He was giving more people more time to accept Jesus for who he is and what he has done. And we'll see that people continue to say no to the free gift, even in the end times. So revelation with that revelation. Are you ready? Seatbelt on. And by the way, one of the other reasons that tonight's going to be an awkward night uh, or an interesting night, it's like, I think it's like five reasons we're up to now, is because I'm going to bring us up to speed and then I'm going to read like three chapters straight up. Just read. I'll, I'll kind of pop in and out here and there, but I'm just going to straight up read three chapters. This is going to be a true Bible study, right? Some of you maybe haven't read three chapters in a long time on your own. So we're going to take care of that for you tonight, Okay. Happens to be some pretty crazy chapters, some beautiful chapters. Look, there has been much controversy around this book. It's known as eschatology. It's a Bible nerd word for the study of the end times. Don't get caught up in it. Don't get caught up in the debates. You pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. I, I, I don't care. Either way, Jesus is coming back and we're going to be fine. Okay? I, I told you, Calvary Chapel, we're, we're pre-trib generally. We believe that before the tribulation, we're going to be raptured. Selfishly, I've told you, love that. Selfishly, want to be in heaven, popcorn, watching the whole thing, right? 
I want this. Spielberg wouldn't touch this book with a 10-foot pole. He can't do justice to the amount of chaos and crazy it's about to ensue. But you need to know that while this book has caused controversy, as Christians, it should cause comfort. It should bring us comfort. When I get, and I've got a, a, a side business, and we're, I'll tell you, you're the first to know. This last week, we're starting to make moves to work in, to, to move our, our clothing company into some charity work. And we're going right for the jugular with our charity work. We're going right into the heart of child sex trafficking. We're, we're going to take our brand. We're going to take our mission. We're going to take our values. We're going to sacrifice people that don't want anything to do with the restorative work in the world. We're going to slide right in with some charities and begin doing things about child sex trafficking. And as I start to do my research, I cringe, I cry, I shake, I ask God why, but I need you to know that this is the book that brings me comfort. That he's gonna cure all of this. We have a call on our life now, but you need to know he's gonna consummate it at some point. He's gonna finish it. He's gonna complete it. He's gonna wrap it all up. He's gonna destroy those people that do those things to those kids if they don't repent. And so while it's a source of controversy, I pray it would be a source of comfort because the whole book is about the revealing of Jesus and Jesus is himself doing the revealing. It's the very first verse. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you miss the first verse, you're going to miss the whole book. You're going to be lost in imagery and chaos and warfare. If you miss the fact that this is the revealing of Jesus. Let me give you a quick backdrop. It was written by the apostle John. He was the last living apostle. He was arguably Jesus's closest friend. I think a lot of times we forget that Jesus had friends. That he lived life. I mean, he went camping for three years with like 12 dudes. You think funny stuff didn't happen? I don't know what Jesus you worship. I I worship the Jesus that had campfire talks with his homies and had some funny stories to tell about that one time they they kicked a demon out. Okay. Some of us forget the personal side of, of Jesus. Fully man, fully God. But John was one of his inner circle. One of the three disciples that saw more than all disciples. Peter, James, and John. I would submit that John is arguably the closest to Jesus. Here's why, as Jesus hung on a cross, hanging from a cross, last breaths exiting, he looked down and he saw his mother and I can't imagine what that felt like. And he looked to his mom and he said, mom, and he looked to John, he said, behold your son. And he looked at John, he said, John, behold your mom. No good guy hands off his mom to a bad guy. Gentlemen, we protect our mother, do we not? First fight I got in in like elementary school, someone called my mom fat. I darn near gave the kid a concussion. I'm not preaching violence, but I enacted it quickly, swiftly, and quite well for a sixth grader. Why? He went after my mom. And Jesus stood there and said, mom, you're going to be okay. There's John. That's who is writing this book. At the time that he was given this book, he was in exile on the Greek island of Patmos. You can still go there today. He had lived in exile. Church history teaches us that they tried to boil him alive. He didn't die. Many of us forget that the real physical ramifications of that, he was very likely severely disfigured, old, disfigured, 
alone on an island in exile, no family, no church, no friends, no meal service, no Netflix. He was in a cave on an island by himself, disfigured. And then his friend showed up. And it gives me the chills just to think about it. A, a couple nerdy things. 278 of the 404 verses, almost 70% of the book and over 500 allusions reference the Old Testament. The greatest author of all time, God himself saw fit to end it by referencing how he began it. It's great storytelling. The whole thing comes full circle. It's been one story with one hero, with one purpose, Jesus. It contains truths that are currently and are yet to be Revealed. We're not going to go through the different interpretations because we could do that for days. I've taught through this entire book word for word. It's online. We're not going to get into that. But you need to know that some of the truths are current. Some of them have yet to be revealed. And as I said, it should be not just a source of controversy, but a great source of comfort. And I'm going to lead us up to chapter 19. Sound good? You want to know what the whole book's about as fast as I can possibly do to get to 19? Jesus comes to John and introduces himself. I love this. He says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, like planking. Just went down like straight. You remember that fad? It was stupid. Don't do it. But, but John did it at that moment. Went down dead. And I love this. I love this. Jesus reveals himself to John on this island by himself, arguably his best friend. Jesus shows up. John falls so fast, so furious. He's a fragile old man. He gets on his face as dead. And it says, but he, Jesus, put his right hand on me and said to me, do not be afraid. John saw God. Jesus saw his friend And he put his hand on him. He said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And some of you tonight, as we get into this passage, tonight, Jesus may reveal himself in a new, profound, and arguably quite possibly a little scary of a manner in his current form. Because when people, when John saw Jesus, he went face down amid that glory of the awesomeness of Jesus. And if you come, if Jesus reveals himself in that way to you tonight, I want you to remember that he puts his hand on you and sees a friend. And so as we go through this passage, remember that that's the Jesus that's being revealed. He's the one that's revealing. There's chaos, there's war, there's death, there's plagues. There's a lot of crazy, but it's still a God that puts his hands on the shoulder of his children and says, don't be afraid. And then he commissions John to pen letters to seven churches. Lots of different ways to interpret this. Just know that he writes it to seven churches, the loveless church, and he calls him to love the persecuted church, and he calls them to endure. The compromising church, and he calls them to correct. The corrupt church, and he calls them to be restored. The faithful church, and he calls them to continue. And the lukewarm church, and he calls calls them to pick a side. 
And it says, after these things, this is chapter four, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you the things that must take place after this. And so at Calvary Chapel, we believe that this is a picture of what's going to happen for the church. John is taken up into heaven. There's no mention of the church again. We believe that's a foreshadowing and that the church will be gone pre-tribulation. But just know that your pre-trib friends, your mid-trib friends, your post-trib friends, if they love Jesus, we're all going to the same place. We'll talk about when we got there, when we get there. Amen? Okay? Not worried about it. Don't divide over it. Okay? Tell them to calm down and love Jesus. Okay? He says, after all these things, I looked up and behold, and he brings him up and John is taken up in the spirit in which all things can be revealed. In chapter four, verse two, it says, immediately I was in the spirit. You're going to see that again when he moves places. He says, and behold, a throne set in heaven and the one who sat on the throne. And so he gives this amazing picture. If you need to read it, it's chapter four, do it tonight. He gives a magnificent, and John is just grasping for words to describe what he can see. It's indescribable, but he's trying the best he can do to describe what Jesus looks like in his glorified body on his throne in which he sits right now as I speak. He sits in a throne. He's not a distant book. He's not a distant character. He's not a history study. He's a risen king who sits on a throne right now. And there's only three ways to deal with a throne and a king. You can deny it. You can try to dethrone him or you can enthrone him. There's only three things you can do with it when confronted with a throne. It's deny it, dethrone he who sits there or worship the one who does. And John gives this description of Jesus in his throne room and the surroundings. And he sees that Jesus is holding a scroll with seven seals. And these seals, as he breaks them, unleash end times judgment. But you need to know that we see throughout the book of Revelations, people have an opportunity to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus before the end, which is really the beginning. So even after the church is gone, I believe, we believe that there is still repentance in tribulation and people are still saved when confronted. And so we see that God endures with them, testing them, squeezing them, saying, every last child of mine come to me. And the seven seals, the first is that there is a conqueror that is set loose and he rides around on a horse with a bow. The second is that there is conflict and mass murder throughout the world. The third is scarcity. There's now limited resources, which always creates an increasing calamity. In the fourth seal, there is widespread death. In the fifth seal, we see the crying martyrs that live underneath an altar cry out for retribution for that, for being killed for the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, rest a little while longer. The sixth seal is broken. There's cosmic disturbances. There's an earthquake. The sun becomes black. The moon becomes like blood. Stars begin falling to the earth. I didn't say a shooting star that went off into the cosmos. I'm saying those little balls of fire are now impacting the earth. The sky recedes like a scroll, it says. Mountains and islands are literally moving. We learned Pangea when we were young, didn't we? How the continents did this and then they spread. In the end times, those mountains, those islands move. Everything is being disrupted. Everything is changing as Jesus pops one seal after another. 
Then we see seven trumpets. The first trumpet is sound. So, sorry, the seventh seal is that there is silence for half an hour. That was about 10 seconds. And you were crazy uncomfortable. Were you not? 10 seconds. The world is in calamity and silence. God stops. And then seven angels are handed trumpets. These seven trumpets begin to blow. The first one, vegetation is struck. It says that a third of the trees are burned and all the grass is gone. It's a wasteland. A third of the trees, all of the grass. The second trumpet blows. It says the, the seas are, the struck, are struck and the burning mountains are thrown into the ocean. The third trumpet blows. Water is struck. It's now bitter and poisoned with wormwood and people are dying from poisoned water. The fourth trumpet blows. Heaven is struck. A third of the sun, the moon, and the stars. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars go dark. The fifth trumpet blows, and now it starts to get real all sorts of crazy. The fifth trumpet blows. It says that the bottomless pit opens. And that from it, and John John is just trying to describe to the best of his ability what he sees. And the first thing he sees is those are locusts. Those are flying insects that eat things. Then he realized, but wait, they're in the shape of horses and they're wearing battle armor. And we see that these are swarms of demons. Satan's henchmen that have been released from the bottomless pit. It says that they have power like scorpions, but they were not given the power to kill, but to torment for five months. They were not given the authority to kill, but rather to simply torment people for five months. The sixth trumpet blows four angels bound to the Euphrates river. I've been to the Euphrates river in Iraq bound to the Euphrates river, release and kill a third of mankind like that. Remember Satan can't be all places at all time. He's not God. He relies on an army. The demons are deployed and they kill a third of mankind. And then the seventh trumpet blows and the kingdom is proclaimed. We see as the book continues that Satan called a dragon, the antichrist called a beast from the sea and the false prophet called the beast from the land take over. Satan and the antichrist begin to accept worship from mankind. Mankind has chosen the schemes of Satan over the saving work of Jesus. It says the false prophet performs signs and wonders. Chapter 13, verse 14, it says, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth. So the false prophet is out there as the chief evangelist, okay? He's doing all the press conferences, for Satan and the Antichrist, and he deceives them, and he tells those who dwell on earth to make an image to the beast, a false idol, and listen to what he says, an image to the beast who was wounded. They want to make this image of the beast. He says, in his likeness, create this image as though he was wounded by a sword and lived. They're imitating Jesus. 
He says, create that image and put us a wound in his side. As Jesus hung there and they put what? A wound in his side. And they're imitating Jesus, scheming so that those would choose them over him. And then seven bowls are poured out, the seven bowls of God's wrath. The first bowl is poured out and there are loathsome, loathsome sores on everyone's body. How many of you had chicken pox and you thought it was the worst thing possible? How many of you have had a boil? A single, anyone had a boil? I had a boil when I was younger. I was working in a music warehouse cleaning like 50 trumpets a day. And I just thought I had a scab for some reason. And I just didn't tell anyone because it was just a scab. And I was in high school, which means I had the IQ of an idiot. Okay, and so like... And, and I just let it go and didn't care and just kept doing my thing. And turns out it was a boil. And at one point I went like this and scratched it and the, the scab flew off. I went, oh no. And I looked down, I could see all the way to my shin. I could see that the very bottom of that hole was my, my white bone. The boil was eating into my flesh. One boil. These over their whole body. The second bowl is poured out. Seas turn to blood. There's your fresh, there, there's your fish supply. There's your salt water supply. The third bowl pours out and clean water, fresh water turns to blood. The fourth bowl is poured out and men are scorched across the earth. The fifth bowl, there is darkness and pain. It says in chapter 16, verse 10, it says that they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. It hurts so bad that what they were trying to do, how many of you remember that trick when you have a headache, try to pinch like one of your your, your, your weird spots or your, your pressure points. Because what are they trying to do? They're trying to get your body to divert the pain so that it forgets this. Their pain was so prolific that they were gnawing on their own tongues to try to divert the pain that they were in. The sixth bowl was poured out, says the Euphrates River dried up. The seventh bowl pours out and it says the earth is utterly shaken Chapter 16, verse 18, it says, there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Our Richter scale is cute compared to what's gonna happen when that seventh bowl is poured out. We see that Babylon, the great earthly empire that set itself up in opposition to Jesus that stood for all that was against Jesus, we see it crumble to pieces. All the suffering, all the destruction, all the scheming, all the deception, Satan, his schemes, sin and death are about to be overcome. Chapter 19, you ready? The Bible tells me as a pastor that God's word never returns void. I need not rely on being clever. Thank goodness. Being witty. Thank goodness. Being funny. Thank goodness. Being good looking. Thank goodness. The Bible tells me the Bible will take care of itself. His word will not return void. And some of you haven't been introduced to this Jesus Some of you may still see meek, mild Jesus. That is 100% accurate, but it may not be 100% current. Do you hear what I said? 
Meek and mild Jesus is a hundred percent accurate, but it may not be a hundred percent current. He was and calls us to be, but that is not who we are going to see. Same Jesus puts his hands on the shoulder of his children. said, don't be afraid. Opens up heaven. Chapter 19 says, after these things, I heard a loud voice. You can read along with me or you can sit back. You can close your eyes. I don't care what you do. Just get a load of what Jesus says this is going to look like. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. There is a worship ceremony. Some of you think we just have to get through worship. As I talked about last week, it's actually practice. We have just Micah tonight, which I love, because at the very end of this, I want us all to stand up and actually sing like we're practicing for heaven. People are like, we did pretty good before. I know, let's go bigger. Okay? It's a worship ceremony. That's how heaven kicks off. It says, for true and righteousness, for true and righteous are his judgments because he has been judged. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God and sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Verse five, then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you, all you, his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the great voice, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and has been the sound of many mighty thundering saying, Alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He says, when this worship ceremony kicks off, it will sound like the Hoover Dam has unleashed. It's water. Let us be glad, verse 7, and rejoice and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Are you? And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. It goes from a worship ceremony to a wedding party. I love wedding parties. Why? Because they're practice for heaven. Why do you think Jesus's first miracle was at a what? A wedding party, man, whoever wrote this book was smart. He says, and I fell at his feet, verse 10, to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. Because it was an angel, it wasn't Jesus. See that you do not do that, John. Relax. See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, John. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. People always ask me, what do I do with prophecy? I'm like, if it doesn't point you to Jesus, it's crap. Discard it. Why? It says right there. Prophecy points to Jesus. Points anywhere else? It's not prophecy. It's a scheme. Verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. That means right now today, Jesus is in heaven and he has a stable. He has a horse. He's getting ready. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war on those who traffic children. I take comfort in that. Jesus, make war. I'll do what I can until you come. But when you come, make war. 
His eyes were like, and he says like over and over because John's just trying to describe it best he can. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself and was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. John 1, 1 says the word was with God. The word was God. That being Jesus, verse 14, and the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen. This is where some of your grandparents are currently, right? Like I'm going to see my grandpa again, be like, you look good. Like following Jesus to war. Good on you, Anthony. (laughs) Okay. These are the saints. These are those who have died before us. The armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him. See, unlike today, look, I was in the military, all respect for the brass, but generals sit back, little guys go forward. The heavenly army is the opposite. Jesus is commanding generals out front. The rest can do what they can to simply keep up. 400,000 star general, Jesus leads. They followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of almighty God. You need to know that God the father is satisfied in the work on the cross. He poured out the entirety of his wrath onto, into Jesus. And as Jesus hung there, not looking like your sin, but actually being your sin, when he absorbed the wrath of God, he maintains it. Therefore, he is the only one that can pour it back out. God, the father is pleased in the work of Jesus, but Jesus returns with the full wrath of almighty God to be poured out on those who run in opposition to him. And he says, and on his robe and on his thigh, a name written. I translate that tattooed. Um, Don't tell your parents. And then it says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has all authority and we're to be all submitted. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. I I think it's a lot like Phoenix. Okay, it probably feels like Arizona at that point. But he said he saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come gather together for the supper of the great God. You need to know this is not a battle. This is a slaughter. Some of you are uncomfortable with that. Jesus, Jesus says, this is who I am. This is how I will reveal myself. This is how I will come up, consummate all things. People talk about the, the battle of Armageddon. It's not a battle. A battle assumes two sides. This is an absolutely righteous slaughter. He says, come gather for the supper of the great God, verse 18, that you may eat of the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and all those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him. They still choose the schemes of Satan. They still, they're given time and they choose Satan. They're given time and they believe lies. They're given time and they're tempted to stand in opposition to the free gift that Jesus offers. They make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is incessant, incurable insanity. Verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of burning fire with brimstone. 
and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeds with the mouth from the mouth of him which, of whom who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It says Jesus comes back and he begins preaching and people are dying. Jesus's very words are destroying his enemies. Chapter 20, it says, then I saw an angel. This isn't Jesus coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon. This is why I believe it's, it's Archangel Michael, quite possibly Gabriel. But keep in mind that, that Jesus is not Satan's opposing equal. Jesus is king above the battlefield. Satan's opposing equal is the Archangel Michael or possibly Gabriel. Those are opposing equals. Jesus is king above all. And so he says he laid hold of the dragon. Jesus says, to this angel, whether Gabriel or Archangel Michael, says, round them up. And he holds the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's what we call the millennium, a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished, until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I struggled with why for a long time. Jesus, you bound him up. Why? We'll get to that. It says, verse four, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and the judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the whole word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. We see repentance and we see salvation even amid the tribulation. It just said it. Those were the ones that did not worship the beast. They did not worship the antichrist. They did not believe the false prophet. And they reigned with Jesus for a thousand years. Verse five, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is, who is part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. My question was always, why? Why, God? Why unleash Satan? What we don't realize is this is a massive picture of mercy. He says, I'm going to have you come face to face one last time with decision. It's the Jesus who's reigned for a thousand years, or it's Satan who I will allow to come back, and it still has to be your choice. He's going to come out. He's going to pull off one last scheme. And God in his mercy allows it so that those who would say no to Satan and yes to Jesus could be with him forever. And he gives them one last time and he gives Satan one last scheme. It says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, verse eight, and will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Anyone tried to count the sand at Zuma recently? I'm going to Oceanside for a week this week. I'll let you know how that goes. 
Jesus says one more time, children, come to me. This is your choice. And Satan goes out and he deceives. And he gathers an army. One last scheme, one last deception, one last try. Incurable, incessant insanity. It's the same mentality that picked a fight with God in heaven and got kicked out. He's going to pick a fight with God one more time. He says in verse nine, he says, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints from the beloved city. And Jesus doesn't even let them get close. He says, they're in positions. And then he says, no more. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them, verse 10, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Schemes overcome. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. This is literally the walking dead at this point. There is literally a zombie apocalypse in the Bible, and some of you didn't know it because you've been avoiding revelation. I'm telling you, Bible's way cooler than most people think. It says, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the book, written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, chapter 21. He says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Super big bummer for surfers. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Some of you believe God torches this whole thing. We go off to a distant heaven and have to don't deal with it anymore. The opposite is true. Heaven comes to earth. And it says this is a new heaven and a new earth. In the, in the original Greek, it's, it's Cain. It's, it's new in character. It's not the next. It's new in character. He restores this one back to the way he created it in Genesis 1. Perfect, in perfect harmony and shalom with God. He restores it. He brings about new character. He says, when heaven comes to earth, it'll be like a bride adorned for her husband. For a husband, there is no greater memory in your mind than when you saw her walk down the aisle. And this is how Jesus describes it. He says, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You need to know that unlike all the false religions the world has come up with, this is the only faith that teaches a God that pursues his people. It doesn't tell his people to pursue their God. 
He came to Adam and Eve in the garden. He came to his people throughout the Old Testament. Jesus came to us in the incarnation. He bridged the gap for us on the cross. Even in Revelation, he's coming back to his people. God is in pursuit of you. He doesn't demand that you get to him. Read the book of Hosea. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus, of a husband that has a prostitute wife that runs. He doesn't stand there and say, I'm a prophet. Come back to me, woman. He says, that's my wife. I'll go get her. And he runs after her. And some of you have been running and you think you have to turn around and get back to God. If you turn around, that's called repentance. You'll see Jesus standing right there saying, I'm here. And he'll put his hand on your shoulder and say, don't be afraid. He says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I will make all things new. Take comfort. We are called to be restorative agents in the world now, but know that ultimately he will cause the ultimate restoration. He will make all things new. And he said to me, write these words, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. Jesus foreshadowed this on the cross when he said what? It is is finished. He says, it's done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely, freely, freely to him who thirsts. All schemes overcome. And he says this, verse seven, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. And that lady, ladies, that's for you too. You will be his daughters. If he is your God, you will be his sons. You will be his daughters. Skip over to verse 22 and he says, but I saw no temple. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the almighty are the lamb and, and, and the lamb are its temple. The city had no need for a sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it and the lamb is its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory to honor it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by date. There shall be no night there and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations to it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, I will be her God, and he shall be my son, she shall be my daughter. Sunday night, if you are a child of God, you're free. If you have given your heart, believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. You are free. We are free from the lies of Satan because Jesus came in grace and truth. We are free from, for the temptations of Satan, 
because Jesus was tempted in every way and yet without sin. We are free from the accusations of Satan because Jesus stands by our side as our advocate. We are free from the threat of counterfeit faith because Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. We are free from division and isolation because Jesus unites as our good shepherd. We are free to overcome the schemes of Satan by this alone, because Jesus has overcome the schemes of Satan. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that that would ring true in our hearts, that we're free. We're free not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. We're free not because of what we say, but because of what you say. We're free not because of who we are, Jesus, but because of who you are. And in you, we find freedom. And so I pray now as we practice for heaven that we would see you high and lifted up Jesus, that we would see you in your rightful position on that throne in heaven, listening right now. Jesus, I pray that you would meet people in a radical new way. And as we come to you, that if we're shaking, if we're trembling, if we fall at your feet, we rest in that promise that you'll treat us as you treated John and put your hand on our shoulder. I say, don't be afraid. I'm here. I'll care for you. I'll guide you. I'll shepherd you. I'll love you in ways that the world could never imagine. And Jesus, tonight we sing as free people. And so I pray for a a stirring in our hearts, mine included as I struggle with worship, mine included as we sing to a risen king who has overcome all schemes for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.